Hello and welcome to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I first met Songhez Ozebi in about 2011. I'm going to take some credit for getting him into journalism, but none for the brilliance of his editorship of Business Day after I left the job. Regrettably, he caught time at Business Day, I thought, way too early, but not before producing a lovely book called uh, Raising the Bar. But that was merely a starter, and he always said there'd be another one. By that time, I'd long assumed he'd end up in politics, but he always said that he needed to write this second book before becoming a politician. Well, now he has. It's called uh, Manifesto, just in case uh, you were wondering if, you know, if, if there was any subtlety about what he's about to do. And besides being a crisp and really great read, it's an unabashed and even brazen call to arms. Songhezo's solution to South Africa's problem at the next election in 2024, the ANC must be removed from power. Songhezo, I presume you'll be needing to register a political party to do that. Um, you uh, say on page 82 of your book that the 2024 elections will be a watershed moment for two reasons. Firstly, if the quality of politicians and political office bearers does not improve, then our national problems will reach a point of no return. Will you be registering a political party? Will you be the leader? Um, or do you then have to create all the trappings of congresses and branches and members and the like? What happens now that you've published your manifesto? Been a good day and thank you very much for a generous introduction. And uh, I really enjoyed my time at Business Day uh, for the time that it lasted. So to answer your question, I have penned the book in a particular way. Uh, the first is that I have stated my intention to do everything that I ask other South Africans to do. Because I felt that if I'm going to speak in the tough language I use in describing our apathy and describing our problems and the kind of things we need to do in order to get our, to set our country on the right path, it would be disingenuous of me to then step back and say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that myself because I'm just a writer. All of you do it. I have always had a very strong sense of responsibility to the country, extremely strong. It's driven a lot of decisions I've taken in the past, including my decision to agree with your suggestion to join the financial mail and then business day. But I always knew that it would not be enough to just write about the issues. At some point, we all need to get in the ring and do it. The journey that I've begun with the book, Peter, is one that could lead to political contestation in 2024. The most important thing I want to do, and I'm hoping to achieve with these kind of conversations since the launch of the book, is to change the mindset of South Africans in the manner that I have changed mine. And that is to understand that democracy is a system of self-government and we need to bet on ourselves ultimately and not look for messiahs who are going to drop out of nowhere. So this is what has happened since uh, we launched the think tank, the Rivonia Circle, and this book in particular, is that a whole lot more people have reached out to me and to my colleagues to start having the discussion about alternatives. And I'm really having those discussions seriously with people in civil society. Some are in business and so on. And my message to all of them is 2024 is a watershed moment. 
we need to make a serious political intervention or just about give up on the country. So, Peter, I will see where those conversations go. But personally, I'm really open to being in the ring in 2024. If you you don't form some sort of political formation that can that can contest the elections, um, you you fail because you you've sort of set yourself up in a way to do it. Uh, you know, we may not be sure what shape it it it, uh, it takes or what it might be called, um, but but you have to, right? You, I mean, I, I, there's nothing in the book that I read that gives you an out. You have to, you have to run. Uh, Peter, absolutely. So, absolutely. So, in South Africa, Peter, there is no direct election of a president. The only way to effect political sure. change through political power is to contest an election through our electoral system. So, I've had the benefit since I left my job in August last year not, of not only being in conversation with a with a wide array of South Africans from all walks of life, but also do some research in the context of our new of our new think tank um focus groups and surveys we're running a second round now so here's the feedback that we are getting firstly people are really tired of traditional political parties in the form in which they are right now so that's at first they hate the fact that they are about personalities and big personalities and egos and fighting over branches and congresses and so on so that's very clear and it's an overwhelming sentiment right across the country that's the first the second thing though which is really instructive for 2024 and beyond, is that people do want political change. They want to participate in politics through a vehicle or vehicles that somehow have a sense of common ownership by the people that support them, rather than the chosen few that they get out of political parties. This is a very difficult thing to achieve because our system works on the basis of party political lists. And so the reason I'm saying I'm quite happy to see where these conversations go is because I know that whatever form an intervention in 2024, if eventually there is one, and I hope there is, whatever form it takes, it's going to be a, it's going to have to be a unique but exciting thing. And that's no small task. We've got to apply ourselves carefully at, at that task and make sure that it's something that resonates with people. Yeah. I mean, you could, we could get in, we probably shouldn't uh, get into a conversation about electoral systems because there's a, there's a, there's a possibility on the table that um, independent candidates will be able to um, run in the next election, but the way the, the, um, um, electoral act has been, or the proposed amendment is um, is quite bizarre, and and I'm sure it wouldn't pass the um, constitutional muster. Um, but um, you, you know, you the, the the book is one a a look forward and a look back. You describe uh, South Africa and the mess that that we're in, and I wonder whether we should be as surprised. You know, this country has been badly run one way or another for hundreds of years. And I often see the last 25 years as the sort of apartheid still ending, you know, that the ANC, in fact, is the last um, remnant of apartheid. And why should it have ended well? You know, why why should anything as disgraceful as apartheid have a happy ending? We, <laughs> This is what we're in now. 
Yeah, but I mean, I, I agree with your core thesis. Like, uh, maybe I would put it differently. And in this way, that we are at the end of a certain era or a certain epoch. And that epoch involves an orientation that says we are fighting a battle for freedom. We are fighting a battle for liberty and, and so on. And in the post 1994 and 1996 arrangement, we also want to be careful to, to gain the peace, the South African miracle. Now, it is time that we move on because the world has changed. South Africa's own political and social landscape have changed and they continue to change rapidly. And the issues that we are dealing with, such as terrible unemployment, inequality, poverty, and increasingly hunger and want for food for millions of South Africans, mean that we have to define a new South African social contract, a new South African moral contract, and a new basis for a struggle and aspiration going forward. It's very difficult to do that if we stay in the old orientation of the ANC's liberation mindset. This is about constructing justice and prosperity for all South Africans. And it's a different thing conceptually. And this is the opportunity that we have, Peter. We don't have a lot of time because the country is falling apart and it's been badly run every day. But we have to do this task basically to walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, that's going to involve, that's going to involve um, getting a place at the table. Uh, that's going to involve contesting elections, getting a place at the table, getting into and forming uh, coalitions. You, you make a point about coalitions. You make two points about coalitions. One is that they won't work, and two is that they're inevitable. Um, you say getting to a point of decisive leadership will not be easy. Not only do we need to be rid of the ANC and its factional balance of forces, we also can't afford a coalition at a national level. So what has to happen? You know, you also say that the political arrangements that will be reached between political parties um, uh, for a coalition will define the country's future for many years to come. So what is it? Is it coalition or is it something else? So um, I'm, I'm deliberately saying uh, things which are seemingly contradictory and maybe. And this is why. The first is that coalitions seem inevitable. And if coalitions take place under the current arrangement where you've got the ANC, the EFF, and and the DA, and the rest of the political parties such as what we have, you are looking at a recipe for disaster because the contestation we've seen in municipalities has been a raw contestation for power. It is not on the basis of a single contested idea. It is about who is in control so they can control the the public trust basically from which everybody likes to feed and so on. So what are we looking at if we do a cold calculation? A coalition between the ANC and the DA is untenable. It is not going to happen. A coalition between some version of the ANC and they're busy competing over, its factions are busy competing over who's more corrupt between them. And the EFF looks more likely. That coalition, I can tell without fear of contradiction, will spell doom for the country. 
because the, a, the EFF in its DNA represents the same idea as the ANC and some of its worst tendencies. So that's what we're looking at. Now, let us assume by some stroke of luck or miracle, you also have a very big coalition of small parties, which are just as chaotic as the city councils that you see, which are always on the brink of collapse for one or other reason. That's not good for the country. But here is a long shot that does not need to be a long shot. In 2024, you will have as many people who are either eligible to vote or are already eligible to vote that already did not vote in 2021 in the local government elections. We need to bring those people back behind a credible idea so that the seat at the table in 2024 is a much stronger representation of the South African political moral idea, which I say in the book is the idea of a social democratic society. Now, it is possible to have a very long stake so that given that coalitions are inevitable, you anchor that coalition and what it does between 2024 and 2009 on a much more resonant idea and the beginnings of a shift in South African political culture. So, I mean, I, I've written down a question here where, where um, because you, you, you're gloriously rude about the, the, uh, not only the ANC, but the DA and the EFF uh, as well. Um, and I was going to ask you if they were part of your target uh, and to ask you where you'll go hunting for votes, but you seem to be suggesting that you're going to look for people who've given up on politics. Um, who didn't go to the polls. I, I can't remember what the turnout was in the last uh, municipal elections, but it was very low. It was 44%, yeah. Peter. The turnout in 2021 was 44%, Peter. Mm. And that's only counting the people that bothered to register to vote. Where, where, will, you, where will you go hunting for those votes on Gaza? Are they, are, they, are they rural or urban, do you think? So... Peter, any alternative that seeks to pursue a fresh idea has to go for that constituency because in 2024, it will number over 18 million voters. That's how many there are in urban and in rural areas. And I also want to dispel the belief that has grown over time that the rural areas are staunchly ANC. The challenge with rural areas is that there is no better alternative. There truly isn't. Uh, the manner in which the Democratic Alliance works is that areas it does not believe are profitable. It expends very little resources on either on building structures, identifying leaders, and also contesting an election and spending money. While the ANC, as the Coca-Cola of South African politics, remain deeply entrenched. So if anybody is going to vote in those areas, they're going to vote for the ANC. If you look at the economic freedom fighters, and you take uh, my area, Peter, where, where I come from, in Timberland, you have a situation where they've elected to gift the king with a car. Now, to be honest with you, Peter, the king doesn't sway the vote one direction or another. In, in Timberland, the king simply doesn't. It betrays a lack of understanding of what people in rural communities are looking for out of uh, out of politics, and therefore I think uh, just uh, as a 
even as an analyst, there is an enormous opportunity in rural communities to propagate a politics that is resonant with people's conditions. Because people use the term Amasela in the Eastern Cape when they relate to the ANC. Amasela is a thief. And you understand the rural areas of the Eastern Cape very well. When people call you that name, they've lost all respect for you. They don't respect you at all. So the ANC is benefiting from a lack of opposition. And I think there is an opportunity to to present a new politics in rural areas that have not been presented before. Not that the issues are new, but the lexicon and and the political culture really have to be different and, and accessible. Yeah. You you have, just as an aside, you have a wonderful um, few suggestions and a little riff on on bringing sporting facilities and community facilities to to rural areas and i it was so you know something i've sort of just thought in the back of my mind for so long um particularly in former transcom from where we both uh, originate you and i uh you know just to just to have boarding schools uh, where people can go and be fed for you know probably for a week or a month at a time where where somebody looks after a football field or a netball field or a rugby field, um, mows the grass, paints the lines. How hard can that be? Um, uh, if you if you try and just think of just think of what we'd be able to produce as a sporting nation if we if we gave all of those kids an opportunity to pick up a ball and kick it or hit it or run with it. Um, uh, we'd be we it would just simply it would change us completely and we're already pretty good and and peter you know that part of the book talks in in essence deals with how i believe we can secure social cohesion and a national character at a broader level social cohesion because when there are even basic sporting facilities in a community it gives the community a different reason to get together to know each other's children to support each other's children and to support each other in many different ways to celebrate one another's successes. What do communities get together about? They get together only about the problems that they have, which mostly emanate from a broken politics. For the rest, people are trying to survive. Mm. And there are no obvious career and work choices in rural communities. And what we have done essentially over the last 20 to 30 years is that we have simply continued the culture of colonial and apartheid servitude under a different and and apparently democratic government. And so it is important that we do this. And then I talk about the, the character building that takes place where when children participate in sports or young people, all the way to building national pride and national character because people begin to see their own children rising to great heights. That role modeling and representation are so important. And yet we are losing all of that. And we've lost all of that. And we scream at the Bafana Bafana coach for stating the obvious. And so I believe that, Peter, when you have a politics that really responds to the things that normal people worry about in families and communities, they will engage with it better and differently. And I think with a better outcome.
you place a lot of emphasis on getting professionals involved. And in politics, that's tended, um, even in Gandhuli, where you come from, that area, the, the professionals that have become involved in politics have tended to be lawyers. Um, and I don't know whether that's just um, happened chance, but I do. I remember way back when um, Transkai became so-called independent back in the 60s, um, the, the, the parliament, which was just over the Bunga, just over the road from, from Amtata High School, um, was full of lawyers. I remember the leader of the opposition I'm sure you will have heard the name as well. There was a guy called Knowledge Guzana, who who yes. was a very fine was a lawyer. lawyer from Tanduli area, Elidale area. Uh, but they were either, you know, they were either traditional leaders or they were lawyers. That was that was the political class. And I wonder how you change that. It's going to be really difficult, Peter. And, and one of the things I think is necessary for us to do is to, at the beginning, involve a wide array of South Africans in the production of ideas. Because when I talk about professionals, it is in recognition of the fact that the working class and the poor have been participating in politics throughout our democracy. They've been protesting, they've been picketing, they've been participating in branch meetings and so on, because it is a matter of survival for them. Because if they don't actively try and influence political processes, the outcomes are going to be worse. And they, and they continue to worsen in any case, but it probably could have been a lot worse. What is missing is a better quality of political decision-making because our political class is not a fair representation of South African society. And the reason it's not a fair representation of South African society is because there is a whole swath of people with knowledge, skills, and experience that can be helpful to political decision-making that have either been pushed out or have checked out of politics. So there is an opportunity given that our problems are now inescapable. There is an opportunity for us to choose to come together and construct a politics that is truly inclusive and involves people who are or were security guards all the way to somebody who's an accountant or a bookkeeper or an economist, because that's what South Africa is. That's what a really, truly representative democracy is. You're going to position yourself and yourselves as social democrats. Just talk about that a little. What do you mean by it? And where in the spectrum would you put a social democrat in South Africa? So in South Africa, Peter, a you know social democratic politics is what the ANC has been trying to do without owning for the longest time, because it wants to have Marxist pretensions, which also are not true. So it flails between being a, called neoliberal all the way to claiming that it, it might still have some, some leftist roots. For those who, who want a simplification, social democracy is what you find in Germany, it's what you find in Sweden, and so on, even though there are different parties there in, in Germany, for instance, conservatives and social democrats, the soul of German politics is social democratic in nature. It's built on solidarity, on common solidarity. It's built on freedom. It's built on equality and it's built on justice. Now, if you mention all of those things and you contextualize them for South Africa with all of its ugly history and the things we need to fix, I think we all agree that South Africans 
want justice. South Africans love their freedom because they fought very hard for it. South Africans want equality and, uh, and South Africans do not like leaving other South Africans behind the inequality and the poverty that we have. South Africans would even be willing to pay a bit extra tax so that uh, those who are going without can also get a leg up in life. That's the South African soul. We need to give that a name because it is also the same thing that our constitution as represented in constitutional court judgments over time is asking us to do. That would be called center-left currently. But I argue in the book, that is the centrist position in South Africa. It's where you will find the ramp of the South African population mm. across races and classes. I, I would, I'm yet to be convinced that someone can argue that the centrist position is different. I think what really upsets people is the corruption and the mismanagement and the misgovernance and so on. Those things upset people. That's one of the reasons why we have had for a long time one of the highest voluntary tax compliance rates in the world because South Africans want the right thing for everybody. There's a fair chance you'll bump into Herman Mashaba looking for the centre, isn't there? No, sure, Peter. Look, participation in politics makes that inevitable. And Action SA is an interesting idea because I believe that Action SA also was an act was an inevitable outcome of the politics that we have. I don't want to comment too much uh, on, on, on Action SA and other parties as I try and avoid doing in the book. What I will say is this, grievance on its own is not sufficient. Our problems are mm. deep, serious, and complex. Simplicity may work for mobilization, but ultimately we've got to solve them. We have structural unemployment, we've got structural poverty, we've got historical current issues, we've got to modernize and plug into the world correctly and so on. And we really need to actually be to take South African voters and the South African public seriously and apply ourselves seriously to public policy. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um, because disgruntlement is really attractive. What I, what I just want to push you finally a little bit on on um, on the economy. And you raised it a moment ago when you said people would be prepared to pay a little extra tax um, uh, to to ease the burden of people who you know our fellow citizens uh, who are struggling for reasons be, way beyond their control. Um, but what sort of economy do you build in order to deliver? Um, um, the the money, the profits uh, that will, you know, that will not only pay the extra tax, um, but motivate people to become to get into the economy and to try their luck and to, um, you know, to take to to be able to take opportunities. There was a lovely phrase in. In a book I read recently, where somebody, the author, said um, uh, it was um, uh, it was the Booker Prize winner, um, the Promise, uh, where the author Damon Galgut says a chance is not an opportunity, and I thought that was such an interesting observation because an opportunity is a huge thing, really. You know, just saying to somebody that you can, you know, start a business and try your luck is. Is isn't 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 enough. On the other hand, you in your book talk about helping people, you know, post-founding, 
uh, with with funding and 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 other kind of help. And I do wonder whether we there's not a danger. You can already see it with in the ANC government. Um, with so many black-run companies are being basically drip-fed financed by the IDC or the PIC, that these people are worried will never learn to live on their own, will never learn to live with disaster and all the many things can, that can happen to you when when you are in business because you're never left alone. There's always somebody holding your hand. Peter, this is a sort of a... a, a a multifaceted question, and I'll try and answer it uh, briefly and and concisely for the sake of time. The, I apologize. The first is that I think we need to recognize the importance of a strong functioning state. It's important. This is why if businesses, especially small businesses, have to spend money on what should be delivered as a matter of course, by local government in terms of basic services and so on, it makes them unviable from the beginning. A large company may be able to 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 afford a, a a loss in its margins or to afford a reduction in its margins and still remain profitable. But if you are a new business and you have to contend with the dysfunction as well as the as the collapse in the state and local and national government. You're not going to be viable. So you need to fix the state to make sure that it works. The second thing is that you need to be clear, and I say in the book, central planning, a statist attitude where the state is the center of all economic planning and activity is the wrong way. You need a state that is a cut is a catalyst of the entrepreneurial spirit of South Africans. One and secondly, is a trusted intermediator of different interests in society through transparent regulation. That's what you need a state to do in order to unleash that potential, and that's what people basically call as as an investment climate. Now, closer to what you are saying. About uh, about black economic empowerment and the IDCs and so on, you will see that towards the end of the book, I'm sure you noticed. I am proposing that we need to do away completely with the Department of Trade and Industry. It's archaic. It's an obstacle. It's an obstacle to to the development of this economy. It's it's the very essence of the statist attitude. Rather have a minister of business and give the treasury what the constitution says it must do, which is macroeconomic coordination. In, in, in this country. And I argue there, Peter, that the large BEE deals which cost lots of money must be the domain of union pension and provident funds and all of this. And we achieve transformation in that way. And the Patrice Tsepes and whoever has got deep pockets and they can borrow from banks, what the state should do is to make sure that it functions appropriately and it supports emerging businesses in two ways. It's not just money. It is the mentorship and the support they need to win themselves off government financial support. Because that's what's missing. Now, I make an example about the think tank that I co-founded, Rivonia Sacro. It's hard, Peter. And I worked in, in businesses for almost 25 years. It's hard. Now, somebody who's an entrepreneur has got funding, but no other support. What do we think is going to happen? 
they're going to remain dependent on the state because we don't support them adequately. And that's why you need a ministry of business, Peter, rather than a ministry of trade and industry, because that's the job of the ministry of business and particularly looks after the growth of growth and transformation of the business sector to support the economy. So I guess we're going to have to stop there. Thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the luck in the world in your new life. And I can't wait to see what comes of the manifesto. And I can't wait to see um, how you begin to position yourselves ahead of the 2024 election. Something has to happen. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And I'll be back next week with uh, another interesting guest on podcast from the edge in the meantime uh, stay safe and keep warm bye bye